Thank you very much. It is an honor and a privilege, really, to be here. <clears throat> I'll tell you the truth. Um, I saw the ad for the upcoming lectures. I didn't. My wife saw the ad for the upcoming lectures. She says, look, who's going to be here? It's all the top people. Why don't you call up and see if they want to use you? <laughs> so I said, yeah, I don't really know. Uh, they have some of the top names here, you know. I, I have a little bit of a, of a you know, uh, you know, a feeling for these kind of things because you know I teach in a seminary, and the first year that they started, they prided themselves on the fact that they hired the best staff in Yerushalayim, and they hired me the second year. So, uh, so yeah, I know how you feel, <laughs> but I figured, okay, you know, I call my friend Pesach Krohn, you know, and uh, and he says, oh, Rabbi Matt Trapp is in charge. I said, Matt Trapp? Matt Trapp knows me for many years. I'll call him anyway, you know. <laughs> in spite of that, maybe he's got some use for me, you know. He says, when are you going to be in the States? I said, I'm in the States in May. He says, hey, do you want to come uh, do a talk in, uh, in Queens? I said, I would love to. So, uh, so I'm really honored to have this uh, opportunity to be here. And I have to tell you that as you all came in, you probably noticed one of the things that makes this evening so incredibly appealing is the fact that it's free. And, um, and I have to tell you a story. I, I spoke for an organization, Karen Ezra Shabbos, uh, which raises money for poor families in Eretzel. And they came up with this great hop, and that was to enlist Yeshiva Bachrim to go and raise money for them. So what they did is they made a Maleva Malka for free. They gave food, and they had, um, uh, you know, uh, music, and they, had, you know, they brought me in to speak. They made a whole thing, you know. And he says, look, uh, announce to the Bachram that we would ideally like them to afterwards go out and raise some money, you know, for Karen and the Shabbos, but do it subtly. I said, me? Of course. <laughs> Subtlety is my middle name, you know. So I came and they introduced me and I got up and I said, you know, um, uh, I heard a number of the Bachram speaking saying, gee, isn't this nice? Why do you think they made this Maleva Malka for us and they're giving us free food, bringing in Rabbi Olavsky, giving us music? Why? This is so nice. Why are they doing it? I said, so let me try to explain this to you subtly. There are people who have no food. And at this point, I held up my role. Food. They have no food. We want you to get us money to buy them food. I turned to the person in charge who at this point had sunk into the ground. I said, subtle enough? <laughs> so uh, the purpose of this evening is so that you will all go out and save the Jewish people. Get it? And that's it. It's really very simple. <laughs> Here, there's a course. Learn how to do it. All right. Anyone got anything else to say? <laughs> I think I broke the mic. Oh, well. That's all right. I made the important points already, so uh, everything else is just uh, developing it from there. In any event, um, the truth of the matter is that, you know, I have to tell you that, you know, how do you become a cure professional? You know, the way you become a cure professional is you try to get paid for it. That's really it. It's really very simple. There's really no difference between a cure of professional and a cure of amateur in that those of us who are cure of professionals don't know any other way of supporting our family. So we became cure of professionals, you know? 
But as far as being able to go out and reach people, as being able to make a difference in the world, right? So we're going to deal with one of the particularly difficult issues that I have found over the years challenge people when it comes to getting involved in Kirov. And this seems to be the number one thing, because who's against Kirov Rechokim? Understand? We don't want people to become from, keep these people out, you know? Now, okay, I have to tell you, you can hear people like that too, you know? Baruch Hashem. Especially living there, it's felt, you know what I mean? There's not a lot of room for anybody over there, so, uh, Baruch Hashem. But, I mean, most of us, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, gosh, you know, apple pie, you know, go out and, go out and, and help people, go out and reach out to somebody. And, and I want you to understand how, incredibly unbelievable it is. I, I will take just myself for a moment because, you know, I speak every other Mozi Shabbos in, in Harnof where I live. And very often I have people come over to me and they say, Rabbi Olavsky, I love listening to you. I said, really, why? He says, because you're so ordinary. And I feel like if you can do it, anyone can, you know? And I, I was deeply touched by that. And I knew exactly what they meant. It's true. I don't have any particular gifts. I don't have any special abilities greater than anybody else. And the fact is that you'll be so amazed. And I can tell you, and anybody who's in the business can tell you, that there are times we did everything wrong. Going by the book, we did everything wrong. And people decided to become from. And there were times we did everything right. And nobody became from. Because it's Siat HaDashmaya. My Rebbe, Rebbe Moshe Shapiro says that right now HaKadosh Baruch Hu is allowing those people of Klai Yisrael who are interested to come back. And we have an opportunity to, so to speak, you know, light the way and lead the way. But you don't have to worry. It's going to happen. It's going to happen and we're going to have the schus to be able to participate in it. And that's all. So, but the people are afraid. What if I say the wrong thing? I've said the wrong thing so many times. You know what I mean? So what if, what, what if I don't know what they hear? But this is the main question. What do I do if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. So you'll say, good question. <laughs> Let's go ask someone. I do this all the time. <laughs> I've never had anyone say, what? You don't know the answer to this? When I was younger, I used to. When I was younger, you'd have older people who would say, how could you follow a religion or do something when you don't, can't answer the question? I said, you know how aspirin works? No, but you take it when you have a headache, right? Do I have to first go to pharmaceutical school before I can take an aspirin? Right? I'm not an expert. I don't have to be an expert. I can, I can tell you it's a good thing. So you ask me a question. So let's go and find an answer. That's beautiful. And the truth of the matter is that we have always encouraged questions. We love questions. Questions are a great thing. Uh, and, and it's frightening when you find that people are afraid of questions. What are you afraid of? So everyone thinks they're going to meet the Apikaris. The Apikaris who's going to ask you that Rambam. He's going to find that Eben Ezra. He's going to bring this. I'm in the business a long time. I never met him. I don't know where he is. Now, to be fair, I've also never met a missionary. I don't know why. I can't find a missionary. I keep looking. I have all these great missionary lines, and I can never find a missionary. <laughs> I, my parents, when they came to uh, they came to Eretzel the first time in 1968, right after the Six Day War, and they met a fellow there who uh, Jesse Abrams, 
who at the time he was learning in Kfar Hasidim. And uh, he, they got close, you know, and uh, we, we picked up the relationship later in, in NCSY. And, uh, and he had, he has the most unbelievable stories. He's just such a character. Anyway, Kfar Hasidim is near Haifa. And there was this thing called Key 73, where all of the missionaries were coming to convert the Jews. So they go down to the yeshiva and they teach them anti-missionary things. So what do they teach them? They go over and say, you believe this New Testament garbage? So the person says, of course. It says, if a person asks for the shirt off the back, we, you're supposed to give it to him. You believe in that? He says, yeah. He says, well, give me your watch. <laughs> and, they, and they leave. And that was it. So they were very inspired. He said, the next day, 10 guys came back with new watches. <laughs> so Yossi Abram says, I, I also want to do some anti-missionary work. You know what I mean? He says, I went into town. I couldn't find one missionary. There wasn't a missionary to be found, you know? So finally, I see a guy carrying a sign saying, you don't need Moses. Wow. I take a look. He's got a nice watch. So you gotta, <laughs> you gotta keep your priorities straight. You know what I mean? You know? He says, so he follows him onto a bus, you know, and he sits down next to him. He says, you believe that New Testament garbage? The guy says, no. <laughs> he says, well, what's with the sign? You don't need Moses. He turns it over. Egged tours will take you to the promised land. <laughs> so, I never met a missionary. I never met the Apicaras. I'm in this business 30 years. I never met them. You know, I have to tell you the truth that so many people, you know, are so afraid of the questions. And I have to tell you, you don't find a lot of new questions. You really don't. You know, I had a girl, I'm going back now, over 20 years. She was learning in the Yeshiva High School in the New York area. And she said to me, you know, I'm not from because no one ever answers my questions. I said, if I answer all your questions, you become from? She says, yeah. I said, let's go. She says, what do you mean, anything? I said, yeah, anything. I have to tell you the truth. She didn't break any new ground. It was all either a chazal. It was all in the Rishonim. There was nothing new. Three hours. At the end, she said, okay, I'll become from. Today she's married to a rabbi. Happy ending. Anyway, we'll put that one on the next uh, movie. In any event, I, I was once a scholar in residence uh, for a Pesach hotel on Friday night, which is the big night for the scholar in residence because there's nothing else to do. So you have to come and listen to him. So uh, I did a similar idea. How do you answer basic questions? Um, in uh, Judaism. And, uh, and I went through the certain basics. I said, now we'll open up, you know, you could ask any question. And the first question was, Rabbi, we can ask anything? I said, yeah. And the second question was, anything? I said, yeah. I said, okay. And they started asking questions. I got news for you. Nobody broke any new ground. Everything they asked were in the Chazal and the Rishonim. There was nothing new. But for the rest of Pesach, people said to me, I never knew there were answers. I never knew that you could answer any question, you know? And the truth of the matter is, it takes time, it takes experience. There's going to be a four-part uh, course that's going to be given for $25, and get the free video if you sign up now, and uh, also it makes julienne fries and all that kind of stuff, so, you know, and you get to save the Jewish people also. So uh, just thought I'd throw that in, subtle. So... Um, <laughs> this is going to be like, a, what do they call that thing where they, you know, they subliminal messages, you know. Anyway, so I thought that would, you know, like, <laughs> subtle. But, um, but this is the idea. The idea is that for ourselves, we have to be able to understand what we're saying. Now, when we deal with people, we are going to find ourselves in the situation to be able to answer questions. And 
<clears throat> a very important idea that, that, and I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction. And that is, <clears throat> there are different types of people who ask questions. Some people who ask questions have dedicated their entire life to this question. They are so invested in this question <clears throat> that there's no way you're going to be able to give an answer. There was a young lady who said to me, there was this fellow who is a reform rabbi, and he says that he, uh, he wrote an entire book on the fact that no one could prove to him there's a God. You know? And she says, so I want to prove to him there's a God. I said, what are you going to do? You're going to prove to him there's a God, and then he's going to call back his book? Understand? His whole book is dedicated to the fact that there's no answer. Suddenly he's going to turn around and say, there's an answer? You're not going to give somebody an answer when their entire life is dedicated to a, to, to a question. The question takes on a life of its own. It's more important. It doesn't matter what you say. <clears throat> the second type of people are people who uh, are serious questioners. They're not so invested in the question, but they're serious. If you ask them, you know, they, they'll ask you a question, they'll read a book on the subject, they'll go to a seminar, they'll uh, take it further, they'll investigate it. That's the second type. The remaining 95% of people who ask questions are asking questions to ask a question. And very often, they don't even care about the answer. Now, almost everybody in this room has had this experience at one point where somebody comes over and asks you a question and you happen to know the answer. It's so exciting. Sometimes you know you know the answer. And you start giving enthusiastically an explanation to the question they asked and you suddenly see such a strange thing. They start to get this kind of bored, annoyed look on their face. You know? And they wait a little bit, and they may even say, stop preaching to me. And you're like, but you asked me the question. What did you do wrong? You assumed that they cared about the question because they asked it. Sometimes they'll ask it fervently. They still don't care about the question. It took me a long time to figure this out. Most people ask questions. These are all true stories I'm about to tell you. All of these things actually happen. <clears throat> Somebody says to me, Rabbi, um, do you believe that Judaism is still relevant today? Yes. Really? Yes. Oh, I didn't think it was. Yes, it is. <laughs> wow. Um, Rabbi, uh, Judaism is unfair to women. No, it's not. It's not? No. Oh. <laughs> I thought it was. Nope. Can you prove there's a God? Yes. Really? Yes. I thought you can't. No, you can. Oh. You want to hear how? No. <laughs> Just asking. <laughs> you know? And I'm, I start to amaze myself. You know what I mean? <clears throat> People don't even want to know what the answer is. They just want to know there is an answer. You know? Posing questions that would cross a rabbi's eyes. You know what I mean? Oh, I caught the rabbi. You know? So people say to me, Oh, well, rabbi, you know, uh, Kashris is just about health. It's just talking about health laws. I said... Have you ever been in a kosher restaurant? <laughs> I can shoot that theory down real fast. <laughs> Must be something else. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm telling you, I wish I could tell you that people were so invested in the questions, you know? Uh, Rabbi, uh, uh, circumcision is barbaric. No, it's not. Barbarians don't do it. <laughs> 
<laughs> now you should know, I've given this answer maybe a hundred times, you know, and everyone just laughs and moves on. One time a person says, it's not true, there's a barbaric tribe in Africa that always in a... you know. <laughs> That's called a joke, okay? It's a joke. It's a... Is that really a real answer to the question? Because unfortunately, most people, we live in an era of sound bites. We live, we, live, we live in an era when people get away with saying things, you know, and, and the more information that you give, and there's been article after article written about this, that things like, subjects like third world debt and stuff like this is not going to be examined seriously in the press because people have no patience for it. You know what I mean? You know, but people want to hear bizarre things. People want to hear, you know, short things, little sound bites that they can, you know, condense the news into a tiny, tiny little segment. And unfortunately, that's the situation we're in. People don't have a lot of attention span. Now, there are people, like I told you, but it's a minimum. I, I teach in a rabbinical training course, Olegola, and the students don't believe me. Don't believe me. I can't tell you how many of these guys went off to work in some of the finest university campuses. And they came back to me and said, Babi it's worse than you said. You know, I, I, it's, a, it's amazing. I was talking to a group of kids from fine universities. I said, how many books does the average college student read a year? And one guy raised his hand and says, what do you mean, the whole thing? <laughs> <laughs> this is what you're dealing with. This is what you're dealing with the situation. Which means that <clears throat> what we need to do is to be able to look at the question and present it in a way that a person is going to be able to hear it without having to give them all the information. You need the information in case you have part of that 5% that want to take it further. But most people are very content. And I have to tell you, I did this once for a group of madrichim in a program called the Tochnit Shabbat, I don't know if it still exists, where they uh, make a Shabbos program for various youth groups that come in. <clears throat> and one person said to me, you know, Rabbi Olavsky, I feel like you have no questions. You're just comfortable in life. I said, I got plenty of questions. It says, these I answered already. Now I moved on to some other ones. I've got plenty of questions. How could you not have questions? You know? You know, a Jew is dead without questions. There are so many questions. But the basic ones, at least, we should be able to deal with. And it's so sad that even among ourselves, we live in an atmosphere where we try to stifle asking questions. I was talking to a basic Yaakov seminary in Israel about uh, how to answer basic questions, this topic. And a girl says, you're not supposed to answer questions. It's a chisarn in your amuna. I said, a chisarn in your amuna? I said, you mean... The more that you believe something without understanding it, that's the greater amuna you have? Yes. Then you will never have the amuna of a Mormon. I have the greatest respect for the amuna of Mormons. These are the people who are filled with such faith. I envy their faith. <clears throat> I once actually was staying in a Marriott hotel. They put in a book of the Mormons. I got to read some of it. And it's, it's, just, it's just so absolutely amazing. John's, uh, Joseph Smith, who had been arrested a number of times for fraud, um, <laughs> claims that an angel took him to a mountain in upstate New York where Yoshka, after the resurrection, came and buried golden plates. And in the Book of the Mormons, a number of family members testify that they felt the plates under a cloth. So there you go. <laughs> after Joseph Smith transcribed the golden plates, the angel took them back, which I think is a pity, because I would have loved to have seen those golden plates. 
that Yashka had buried there. But in any event, this is the Book of the Mormons. Uh, Joseph Smith was eventually killed by, thank you, by an angry mob, and Brigham Young took over. Brigham Young was the prophet of God. Brigham Young was charged with the obligation to bring them to the Pacific Ocean. And after a long and arduous journey, he brought them right to the banks of the Pacific Ocean, which only later they found out was, in fact, the Great Salt Lake in Utah. (laughs) Small detail. And yet, Brigham Young was constantly inspired by God through an ongoing revelation. For example... When Utah wanted to become a state of the Union, they said, only if you outlaw polygamy. Now, cynics might not believe this, but people with real faith will appreciate this. That night, God came to Brigham Young and said to outlaw polygamy. I mean, the timing is what makes it almost miraculous. (laughs) And it continues right down to our very day because they were going to throw them out of the NCAA, Brigham Young University, because they didn't allow in black students and the head of the... Um, Church of Latter-day Saints got uh, an inspired prophecy from God that we should now let in black students. How could you, how could you ever think you could have the amuna of a Mormon? Gosh, we just have too much going for us. We have so much evidence, it takes away all the fun. You know? <clears throat> My daughter was in ninth grade and she comes home the day, uh, Bess Yaakov in, in Yerushalayim, she comes home the day of parent-teacher's meeting to say she got into a fight with the Yahadus teacher. Timing is everything in this business, you know, as I pointed out. So we went in there figuring, okay, we're in trouble, you know what I mean? And we, you know, of course, went to apologize to the teacher and to threaten, you know, to, to promise to do whatever we had to do. We'd beat our daughter, whatever was necessary, you know, to uh, maintain our place in the school. <clears throat> and the teacher said, let me tell you what happened. You know, whatever happened, I'm sure my daughter was wrong. We apologized, whatever it is. Please, please, you know. She so, says, no, let me tell you anyway, you know. He says, I was teaching, it was before Hanukkah. And I said, you know, the difference between the Jews and the Greeks is that the Greeks have to understand everything and everything has to be proven to them and everything has to make sense. And we Jews just believe. So my daughter, who never had sat through too many of my classes, said, what do you mean, we're naive? We just believe what anybody tells us? So the teacher says, well, we stood at Harsinai and we said, Nasev Anishma. And my daughter said, that was after the Esomakos, Krius Yamsuf, the Mun." We had something to base it on. There was some evidence to support it. It wasn't based on nothing. And the teacher, to her incredible credit, said, you're right. Right? And the teacher wanted us to tell us that. You know? And she says, because your, your daughter obviously has a wonderful chinuch. So he says, well, the school does a wonderful job. She says, no, you're not getting it from us. That's for sure. <laughs> you know? This has to be coming from the home. Because trust me, she didn't get this from us. <laughs> To be able to answer questions, to be able to understand, you know? So that's why we get frightened. Someone's going to ask me a question. I met a guy in the Boston-based Medrash in Harnof, and he says to me, I don't know what to do. I have a neighbor, he's not religious, he wants to learn with me. I said, I never. He says, yeah, what do I do? I said, well, what are you afraid of? He says, what if he asks me a question that I can't answer? I said, like what? He says, maybe Hashem created the world and left. I said, where does an omnipresent being go? I said, but you know, forget about that. Forget about the answer for your neighbor. How do you answer it for you? He said, I don't know. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to, I don't want to think about it. I said, you know, they were showing him ask these questions. These are not new questions. He's not breaking any new ground. What about for yourself? I don't know. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to know. I don't want to, you know. This is, this is what's so sad. So you have to be able for ourselves to be able to answer the questions. And, I, and I've noticed this over the years that 
the hardest questions to answer are the ones that we are not comfortable with ourselves. You know, <clears throat> I had, um, I, I, when I teach over how to deal with uh, women's issues, I always tell uh, the budding rabbis, if in your heart of hearts you are really a male chauvinist, don't answer these questions. Because I've had it over the years where people come back to me and say, you know, Rabbi Orlovsky, I gave you answers, and people said that they found my answers patronizing. I said, you know why? Because you were patronizing. That's why. <laughs> so it's the same thing you say. I said, believe it or not, I believe it. I'm not just saying it, you know? When uh, I grew up uh, in a house, I'm one of six boys. We didn't have any gender-appropriate jobs, you know, so we learned how to cook and how to clean and how to, uh, you know, uh, do laundry and all this kind of housework stuff. I was a very popular guest as a buffer when I was invited over, you know, because I would clear off and I would say, you know, and, um, and, you know, when girls would come to my house, they were absolutely amazed, you know, it's a high, never, I thought the father just sits there and gets waited upon and I said, my mother didn't bring me up that way, I'm sorry, you know, her, her theme was, it's the maid's day off, let's go, let's go, you know, like, you know. You know, and, my, and sometimes the, the Bala boss would say to me, no, 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 you sit. But the wife never said that to me. I don't know why. She, <laughs> she never seemed so troubled by that. You know what I mean? So if you, if you don't really, you know, but if you, if you really can't, hey, so I'll give you an example. I was listening once to a radio program. Oh, I can't wait to get back there. It's, oh, it's so hot in this country, you know? <laughs> it's hot, and then all of a sudden there are thunderstorms and things going on and lightning, you know? Shoo! Makes you wonder what a Kodesh Baruch was trying to say, you know? <laughs> By me, it's always sunny and nice and uh, wonderful. You know, we have no problem. Occasional threats of nuclear war, but otherwise everything's... <laughs> uh, other than that... <laughs> Someone says, yeah, it never rains. Right, we're almost out of water. You know what I mean? But other than that, Baruch Hashem. You know? But I come here, I take a drink, and I go back. Anyway, so. <clears throat> My kids were like leaving the water running. I said, what do you can do if we run out of water? She says, we'll have soda. <laughs> That's similar to when I say, listen, you know, we don't have any money. So he says, Abba, write a check. <laughs> That's a real Israeli. Only Israelis think that way. You know what I mean? Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, overdraft is a way of life. But anyway, I try to explain that in America you can only spend as much money as you have. Mapitom. <laughs> what kind of concept is that, you know? One Makola owner calls in that little box of his and the whole economy of the country collapses. And I, that's it. There is no money. It's all, it's all in paper. It's all based on... Anyway, Baruch Hashem. Miracles. Miracles is what I meant to say. So, um, but uh, the... Um, I was saying something so interesting before this. <laughs> yeah, so I'll give you an example. I was listening to a radio program about answering, answering a question that you're not really comfortable with. I looked at this question. Uh, there was a reformed rabbi and an orthodox rabbi in the radio. And the interviewer says, is, uh, do you believe that, um, that Tisha B'Av is still, um, still applicable today? Is it still relevant? The reformed rabbi says, no, of course not. You know, why would you mourn the destruction of a building from 2,000 years ago? I walk around, I see Israel being built, I see people living here, I see Hebrew revived. It's no longer relevant. 
And he says to the Orthodox rabbi, Rabbi, he says, no, because the temple was destroyed because of sinat chinam, senseless hatred. And doesn't senseless hatred still exist among our people? And so the message of Teshuvah remains relevant. You know, beautiful. So he says, so Rabbi, you're looking forward to the rebuilding of the temple? He says, yes, I am. With animal sacrifices. <laughs> and you hear the rabbi go, Ugh. And then he begins to, you know, just like fall apart. You know, I was like, well, I mean, of course, one has to understand that. If you understand the, those who may suggest that from the vegetable kingdom was, was of course, you know, he sounded just like John Kerry. You know what I mean? Like, this rabbi. Yes. Yes. Animal sacrifices, you know. He goes to the reform rabbi. What about you? He says, no, of course not. What for? Kill a little animal. <laughs> and I listened to that and I said, oh boy, that could have been me just now. And so I sat down and said, okay, why am I having trouble answering this question? And I realized, because in my heart of hearts, I wasn't looking forward to slitting the goat's neck, catching the bursting blood in the little Mizrak, running barefoot through the blood, throwing it on the comeback, wait, cutting him up, taking out the innards, putting a little tray, bringing it up, you know. And I'm a Kohen, you know what I mean? So... <laughs> And I'm, and I'm, and I have to admit, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with this, you know? So I realized I can't answer the question for anybody else until I answer it for myself. I have to work on it for myself so that I'm comfortable. And I worked on it, and I worked on an approach, and Baruch Hashem, you know, four months later, I'm doing a question and answer for a secular group, and a guy says, okay, Rabbi, what about animal sacrifices? Now, this is one of those questions like, okay, Rabbi, what about the Holocaust? Okay, Rabbi, what about, you know, where they just want to see you go, eh, you know? Okay, Rabbi, what about animal sacrifices? I said, what about them? Now, that threw them off completely because <laughs> that's not the right answer, you know? He says, well, you're killing animals. I said, are you a vegetarian? He says, no. I said, how do you think they get the meat? <laughs> They don't just go over to the cow and say, could you lend me a rib? You know what I mean? You know? He says, well, I'm not there when it happens. I said, that's what's bothering you? Don't worry, you can, applaud, you can appoint a hit coin to knock off the cow for you. You don't have to be there, you know? Um, but it's barbaric. Why? Because barbarians do it. I said, barbarians eat lunch. Do you eat lunch? So the guy is completely falling apart here because he doesn't really care that much about the question. The whole point of the question is to make the rabbi squirm, and I'm not squirming. So I said, I guess what you're really saying is, Rabbi, I understand that there may be a benefit to killing an animal for a worthwhile purpose, like for food or something like that, but I'm not sure I understand how sacrifices serve a worthwhile purpose. Could you explain that to me? Is that your question? Um, yeah, I guess so. Okay, that's a good question. The Ramban talks about it, and I was off and running. But I realized I had to first confront my own problems. Once I'm comfortable with the question, then I can deal with it. But all the time that you yourself are not comfortable with the answers to the questions, don't try. Take them to somebody else who is more comfortable, who feels you know, that, they, that they are comfortable with the answers that they're giving. The uh, next thing to remember is to understand the difference between a question and a comment. I, I can't tell you how often I see people trying to answer comments. A comment is, oh, I think Judaism is ridiculous. That's not a question. That's a comment. And I respond to it like I do to most comments. Oh. <laughs> 
Well, I happen to think that. Oh. And that's usually where it ends. Sometimes the person will say, do you agree? No. Oh. So now he says, oh. You know that? Because he's not interested either, you know? And you see people get involved in these argumentations with people. And they start saying, no, but once you go, isn't this true? But the person doesn't care. The person, the, the person's made it clear. Here's one of my favorite lines. And I've heard this, I don't know how many times. And I see people fall for it over and over again. <clears throat> Nobody can prove to me there's a God. I'm sorry. Nobody's going to convince me there's a God. Go ahead and try. And I see people fall for this. But he just told you nothing you say is going to convince him. Why are you wasting your time? Nobody's going to prove to me there's a God. I said, yeah, you're right. I believe you. You're totally closed-minded. Why should I waste my breath trying to convince you of something when you're not interested? No, no, go ahead. So what for? No matter what I say, you're going to say, see, I'm not convinced. You know, I agree with you. And that's why sometimes when people get so stuck on a particular issue, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. You know, there's no point in trying to answer a statement when somebody is so, you know, um, uninterested. What are, you, what are you trying to convince them for? Put it aside. I, I can't tell you how many times I find this, that people try to work on exactly the issue that they know that people can't handle. Right? A person said to me, I have this girl, she has a beautiful voice, and she says, you know, I could become firm except for Koisha. I just, I can't deal with that. It's too hard for me. She says, how do I explain it to her? I said, don't. Talk to her about Shabbos. Talk to her about Pashas. Talk to her about Tefillah. You've got so many mitzvahs to get to. When you run out of everything and you're just left with Koisha, call me. You know what I mean? When you got everything else down. You know, but it's the one thing that the person tells you I can't handle and that's the thing you want to beat them over the head with? Right? So, those are my brief introduction to how to answer questions. There's much more to say on the theory of it, etc. But, like so many board games, there are those people who like to read through the rules till they really master the game. And then there are those people who say, well, let's just start playing. We'll figure it out as we go along. And they never really do, I should point out. That's why most people would never succeed in tournament monopoly. Because they don't really understand the game. Free parking, there's no money that goes in the middle. That's a mistake. You don't get $400 when you land on go. It doesn't say that anywhere. I'll tell you better than that. State Mefurish in the rules. That there are 32 houses and 12 hotels. So the Minigar Elam is that when you run out of hotels, you take one and you put it in between Mediterranean and Baltic. And so, that's usher. You can't do that. If there's no hotels, you can't put up hotels. That's the din. But nobody knows this because nobody ever thought to read the equipment section and the rules. Who would ever guess that that was, a, that was important? But do you understand that tournaments have been made and broken on this rule? It's unbelievable. But anyway... There's a lot to say on this subject. I don't really want to get into it. I will just tell you that uh, the monopoly that has landed on the most is the orange. Because the spot on the monopoly board that's landed on the most is jail. You can figure out why. It's a push it's far. And uh, because of that, six, seven, and eight, which are the most commonly spun numbers, brings you to the orange. Okay? So I gave you something tonight. Nothing else. If you walk away with nothing else tonight, you just understand that. All right, Baruch Hashem. So in any event, as it says in Parshish Korach, at this point, we're going to uh, throw open the floor. That was a pun there. But, uh, <laughs> went over everybody's head. But I'm not proud. I'll repeat it. As it says in Parshish Korach, 
Korach. We're going to open up the floor. <laughs> do I have to do this again? I'll do it again. I don't care. I don't look at myself as someone who tells jokes. I see myself as a mission to help the humor impaired of the world to be able to understand. You don't have to think it's funny, but you have to at least know there was a joke. That's all. <laughs> that much I can ask of you. Yeah. In any event, um, I will attempt to show you how to answer some basic questions. And I'm going to be slightly selective because some of these questions will take a little bit longer to answer than others. And I want to really try to give a, uh, you know, um, a little bit of a cross-section and a little bit of time we have available. Because at the end, there's a, an, an, another dramatic film that we want to show you. And then I want to give everyone an opportunity to sign up for this wonderful four-part course um, that's going to be taking place right here in Queens. Right here in Queens for $25 and a video. A DVD, sorry. I'm so old. Anyway, I still say things like records. Anyway, yes, sir. Um, what if people ask you or tell them to say that Judaism uh, uh, doesn't allow you to have a good time? It's too, it's too restrictive. You hear this question? This is an unbelievable question. What do you, no, of course you can't hear it. That was like a rhetorical question. I'm going to repeat all the questions. Don't worry about that. Feel free. Don't, don't worry. No one will be left behind. Okay? Because we're going to reach out to every... You know, if each person here just talks to ten people. You just talk to ten people, right? Now make a cheshman. Right? How many people is that going to be? Enough people to guarantee that your kid won't have a place in school. But anyway, <laughs> halavai, halavai, that'll be our problem, that we have so many people breaking down the doors, there won't be a place to go. Oi, what a bracha. Anyway, so we'll build more schools. Then I'll come here again on behalf of Torah Masara. <laughs> anyway, Hashem, let that be our problem. So, um, um, for, yeah, so the, the question is, what do you do if somebody asks you, you know, well, if I be a from Jew, I won't have any fun in life because Judaism um, doesn't let you have any fun. It takes away all the things that are fun, etc. Now, you, you're gonna, you may find this hard to believe. I have never been asked this question. And I have been asked the exact opposite question. I have been asked the following question, I don't know how many times. Uh, dozens of times. They say, you know, Rabbi, you are the biggest threat to my secular lifestyle. I said, me? Why? What class did I give? He says, no, no, I don't listen to when, when you talk, you know. I said, well, I appreciate that, you know. I said, then what is it? He says, I know I'm living this secular lifestyle, and I can do anything I want, and I am. And I know you're living this restrictive lifestyle, and I can't help but feel you're having more fun in life than I am. And I said, kills you, doesn't it? <laughs> I said, that's right, loser. You know what I mean? <laughs> and this is, you should understand, there is no way to answer this question. You have to show people. People have to see you. The famous, I think it's Mechayim Shulavitz who says it. The famous, famous uh, Medrash, the Das Canaan brings it down in Pasha's Vayigash, where Pyro says to um, to Yaakov, how old are you? And he says, well, I'm 130 years old. I had a long and hard life, you know, and that's why I look so old, but I haven't really reached the ages of my, of my parents, right? So, Kosh Baruch who says, you had such a hard life, 
Didn't I get you back Yosef and get you back Dina and get you back Shimon? Didn't I save you from Esau? Didn't I save you from Laban? And all you do is complain? You're going to lose 33 years for the 33 words that you just said. That's the Medish. So, I think it's Rechayim Shmulavos asked the Kasha. He says, I understand. The only way to come to 33 is if you include the question. How old are you? So, he answers, because if you're a firm Jew and people look at you and say, Oi, why do you look so miserable? That is the worst condemnation. And I get this question, since you, le- you actually led me into towards, towards the end, where people say to me, Robert Olansky, what's the one question you can't answer? I said, I'll tell you, the one question I can't answer, and I don't know what to do when they ask me this, sometimes people ask me this question. You know, Rabbi, I hear everything you're saying, but how come when I go to religious neighborhoods sometimes, I see so many people who look so miserable? And now that's only a perception. It's only a perception. But if people don't look at us and see, wow, Simchas Achayim, wow, we've got something better. People don't come to our house for showers and say, wow, look at what they have here. Look at how they daven. Look at how they live. That's a condemnation. And so the answer is, they have to look at us and say, wow, you're having more fun than me. And I get that all the time. I don't get the question of, gee, how come I can't have fun? I get the opposite. Yes, sir? Uh, I have a uh, comment, a comment anyway. Okay. Uh, you, 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 Okay. Perhaps you could venture to explain how this sadistic behavior is good. 
Right. Now, I'm not going to respond to the comment because the comment was a comment and not a question. So, although I have what to say. On the second question, I just want to say by way of introduction, I've never been asked this question. Which, which is okay. I just, you know, as you're asking the question, you just, I see people in the room here saying, okay, I'm not going. You know what I mean? Like, you know, that I'm... And I just want you to know, which it doesn't make the question illegitimate. I just want you to know, I've never been asked it. That's all. Because it never seemed to have bothered anybody. Was that? It's a good question. I'm just saying. I just. I'm just going on the statistical analysis. It's a good question. I don't know. It's a psychological question. I'm not a psychologist, right? I'm just saying that. You know, when the questions that we have been asked, and those are the ones that most likely people are going to, you know, get themselves ready to be to be answered. You know what I mean? This is just not one that I have in the 30 years that I'm working in the field I've ever been asked. That's all. It doesn't make the question legitimate. I'm just for everybody else here. Take a deep breath. You know what I mean? Take a drink of water. Well, I'll take a drink of water for you because you don't have any water. But you know, and uh, relax. <clears throat> the uh, the answer is that um, the world that we live in is an imperfect world. It was a perfect world. It was a perfect world. And in fact, as the Chazal tell us, when God created Adam and Eve, it says that he took them around to the garden and showed them all the trees, showed them the world, and said, look at how good my world is. Whatever you do, don't mess it up. But in Ghana, then, the lions were not eating the lambs. They weren't ripping anybody to shreds. No, there were no carnivores. Nobody was getting killed. You know, that's not the way that a Kurdish Baruch Hu originally designed the world. Right? For better or for worse, human beings are in charge of this world. And this is such an important idea um, that I'm just going to take a minute to go on to just so that we understand this. We are not merely a part of nature. We're not another animal um, or life form in this world. We are the purpose of creation, right? And therefore Rashi says, for example, that when the people were bad and God decided to destroy the people, he also destroyed the animals. And the question is why? The answer is because if there are no people, then there's no purpose for a world. You don't need a world. The world does not hear so that it can exist. And then there's also people. The world is only here for people. And if there's no people, then there's no purpose to the world. We mess up the world, unfortunately. We mess up the world. We, we make a world that becomes morally corrupt. And as it becomes morally corrupt, it becomes physically corrupt. That's the way. And if you take a look when it gives explanations for plague, and for earthquakes and for any of these natural phenomena it's a reaction to the way people work it's not a random universe there's, there's, a, there's a logic to it that goes on we destroy the world and the world becomes an unstable place so now the world has been changed into an unpleasant place there are things that happen that are not pleasant no question about it right there's, <coughs> there are animals who suffer, and uh, 
you can see, you gave one example, there are plenty of other examples of where we see animals suffer, etc. Um, according to many of the Rishonim, God does not send that lion to eat the lamb. He created a lion and a lamb to be able to be together because of the fact that we messed up the world. Now a lion has a particular nature and a lamb has a particular nature and a dog has a particular nature and this nature now exists in the world. And if we, you know, um, live in a world that's messed up, bad things happen simply among the world itself for the same reason that there's, you know, drought and earthquakes and all the other bad things that happen. So if you, so to compare it to the child who's playing with the cat and mouse is not fair. Because God's not really doing that. God gave us the free will to do with this world as we will, and we twisted it. And now the nature of these animals have been twisted so that they're violent and they go after each other. That's not, it's not a good thing. It's unfortunate. Understand? But it's not that God's saying, oh, let's hold the little lamb here and let the, let the lion eat him. You know, he's not playing games with him. We live in a world that's unfortunately a mess. And, that, of course I believe it. You believe that mankind did something wrong to the lamb now has to stop with everything? You know, I'll give you a simple example. I'll give you a simple example. Of course. Of course. But God created a world and gave you the keys to the place and said, take care. You know what? Are you a parent? Yes. Did you ever do anything wrong and your kid suffered? If you never did, you deserve the Parent of the Year award. I have. I've done things wrong and my kids unfortunately suffered because of mistakes that I made. And therefore, every person in this world has the freedom to be able to do things. Okay, I'm, I'm being told to move on. But we could talk about this afterwards if you like. Yes? I'm going to tell you. How could God create gay people and then forbid it in the Torah? Um, I'm not going to get into the debate as to whether or not gay people are gay by um, a genetic situation that they can't help. I'm not going to get into that. Let's say that's true. And there's not evidence to support that, but let's say it's true. I want you to know that it has been discovered that a lot of men have the adultery gene. This means that even though a woman becomes married, they still find her attractive. And therefore, they are being stifled from their natural desire to express themselves. And that's, you know, that's really unfortunate because they could prove to you that genetically they're attracted to this woman and you're trying to stifle them. And you're right. You're right. And there are certain people who have the pork gene where they find pork to be enjoyable. In other words, there's a mistake. The mistake is that if I want to do something badly enough, it must be it's mutter. And that's not the case at all. We're all created with desires, with wants, with things that... Right? Brismila. Right? What does Brismila tell you? Um, there is, to date, I haven't checked, but I remember 10 years ago they used to say this. I haven't checked since. No Israeli pilot ever got 100 on his medical. 
Because they use the British system and you lose one point if you're circumcised. And this is what the Greeks were so upset about too. Well, you're messing with the human body. It's perfect. And we say, no, it's not. It is created imperfect. And you have to perfect it. So too, <clears throat> I have the anger gene. Other people may have the selfish gene. And you're right. That's my natural makeup. And we have to rise above that, change, improve, make ourselves into something else. And so therefore, if a person says to me, I'm gay, so okay. So now you have to figure out, that's your challenge. But you're right, just because a person says, but I really want to do something. Mati Berger once said, I heard him say this once, he says, you know what it means when you have no choice? It means if two people are about to engage in a homosexual relationship, and there's smoke coming in under the door, and people start banging on the door screaming, fire, fire, and they say, I can't help myself. Then it's a person who has no choice. But we have choices. I just read an absolutely fascinating book about Peter the Great. I'll give a moment for that to sink in. <laughs> I understand that everybody would take Peter the Great and fascinating put it together, but okay, you know. <clears throat> anyway, so his nemesis for much of his life was Charles XII of Sweden. And Charles XII of Sweden never got married. And the historian who was writing this book said, there are people who suggest that he was homosexual. But there's no evidence to support that. It's just they assume that since he wasn't having a relationship with women, he must have had a relationship with men. They couldn't even imagine that he wasn't having a relationship with anybody. You understand? That's where we're coming from. It's got to be this or that. I, when I was in NCSY, you know, so I remember what he said, you know, well, you, you know, boys dance with the boys, the girls dance with the girls. They say, well, you want us to be gay? You know, I said, is that the only alternative? That's it, you know? <laughs> you know? No, by the way, is the correct response. Yes? <laughs> you know? <laughs> It depends how you define better. Depends how you define better. Right? Let us take the story of Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu, God comes to him and says, I want to make you into a chosen nation. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to this, I'm going to that, etc., etc. Right? Make you famous. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to... Right? Okay. So, that's Pashas Leichucha. Right? I'll make you name famous. I'll make you famous. Make you great. Make you rich. Then he heads off. What's the first thing that happens? Famine. He has to leave. He goes down to Egypt. What do they do? Kidnap his wife. He gets his wife back. He has a fight with Lot, his only remaining relative. Right? Now, Lot gets captured. You know, he has to go to battle against the four world powers. Okay, he's got Eliezer with him. You know, Baruch Hashem, it's even. You know what I mean? He defeats them. He comes back. He's 10 years without children. He has to take another wife. His two wives don't get together, you know? And then at the end of 29 years of this, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, So, how do you like my confidence so far? Good, huh? Wait, I got one more surprise for you. Bris Mila. I was saving that for the end. You understand? <laughs> What's the message? When he says, chosen people, what do I need chosen people for? Sit around and get a reward? I want to give everybody a reward. So I created the world. But take a look at this world that people have turned into, turned it into, Abraham. There's hunger, and there's war, and there's crime, and there's family problems, and there's childlessness, and there's all kinds of problems. I want you to solve the world's problems. That's why you're here. 
And I want, I will sign it in the flesh because that means you're going to make a nation. You're going to teach your children afterwards. And you're going to make an executive corps that's going to be dedicated to fixing up the world. So, are people who are dedicated to fixing up the world have a more important role to play in the world? Probably. Does that make them better? I don't know. You know, is the executive inherently better than the person who's working on the assembly line? I don't know. That's, a, that's a, an argument you can go around. Now, you know, anyone can join. Anyone who wants to. And sometimes people ask this question a little differently. They say, Jews keep 613 commandments. And uh, non-Jews keep seven. Uh, are Jews going to get more reward in the next world? I said, I sure hope so. I'm keeping 613 and you're keeping seven and we should get the same amount? He says, it's not fair. I said, you want to join? You want to sign, sign up? No problem. <clears throat> I remember when I, um, at one point I had, uh, I was uh, diagnosed with high blood pressure. And um, they, uh, the doctor said, you know, if you lose weight and you exercise, then you won't need medication. And after a few months, he more or less realized that that wasn't going to happen. And, uh, and he gave me medication. And after, you know, two years, I had to go to the cardiologist and have him redo the, the, uh, the medicine, you know. So he looks at it and, and um, every medical professional, and it's absolutely amazing, through many, many years of medical training have figured out that I have a weight problem. I don't know how. <laughs> every one of them, through their careful testing, have managed to discover this, you know. And they said to me, you know what your problem is? I said, yeah, I'm not getting enough red meat. They said, no, that's not your problem. <laughs> So if you lost weight and exercise, then you wouldn't need the medicine. I said, I know. So give me the medicine, you know? He said, but it'll be better if you didn't use the medicine. I said, you're right. But I'm not going to exercise and I'm not going to diet. So you might as well just give me the medicine so I don't die. <laughs> and so if you want to follow the 613 commandments, you're going to have a very high spiritual level and you're going to be very good. And if not, just follow these seven. So at least you'll have some spirituality in your life. You want to move up to the higher level? Call a vote. We've got plenty of openings. You don't want to? Take the seven, go to heaven. <laughs> and so that you appreciate this. Not everybody appreciates this. You know? Um, uh, Christians begin counting time from the birth of Yashka. Before that was no time. B.C., cavemen, dinosaurs, ugh, ugh, right? Uh, Muslims start counting time from when Muhammad, his night flight from Mecca to Medina, where he had the first inspiration that became the Quran. Jews start telling time from the creation of the world. We didn't start a new calendar at Matan Torah. The creation of the world. And that's why Christianity believes if you're not a Christian, you're going to go to hell and you're going to burn there forever. And Islam believes if you're not a Muslim, you're going to go to hell and you're going to burn there forever. And therefore, they think it's very important that you become a Christian or a Muslim and they'll use everything they can to influence you, including the rack and the fire and, you know, torture, so that you will become a part of this religion of love. And, um, and when they come to a Jew and they say, I want to become a Jew, we say, why? What's the matter? You don't like book chops? You know what I mean? What's your problem, guy? You know what I mean? He says, well, I want to go to heaven. No problem. Do the seven, go to heaven. He says, you mean you don't have to be a Jew to go to heaven? He says, that's right. So, so what kind of religion are you? You know? So we're not that kind of religion. He says, but I thought God gave the Jews a mission. Right. To teach the world, to look for spirituality, and we want to bring that to the world. And you know how we're supposed to do it? By setting a good example. Yes, sir. Uh, a lot of times I've been told after the end uh, that confronted by secular and not necessarily so secular that uh, as a person when they become religious, they uh, lose their personality. So how is the rest of the I know, it happened to me. <laughs>
answer it, but what you would do... <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> now, what do I mean by this, right? <laughs> people say to me all the time, I see these people, they become religious, you know, and they, they all dress in black and white. I said, yeah. He says, then they have no identity, they have no personality. I said, you mean you need colored clothes to have an identity? I said, so what happens if somebody puts on your clothes, then they become you? You know what I mean? What are you, Superman? You know what I mean? Like, you know? I said, I don't know. No one's ever accused me of having, you know, I have the opposite problem. People tell me I have too much personality, you know? They think I should calm it down a little bit, and I could hear that. But, um, but the, the truth of the matter is that when you, um, when you talk about a, uh, you know, a situation where everybody becomes the same, it's just the opposite. I heard Reverend Dr. Gottlieb, professor of philosophy, uh, once pointed out, he says, the only way to allow a person to truly um, express who he is as a person is to have everybody dressed the same. Because if I need clothes to express who I am, then I don't have much of a personality to start with. You know what I mean? But whereas if everybody dresses the same, you know, then I have an opportunity to focus on me, what I think, who I am, etc., etc., you know? And, um, and that's the idea. But I, I haven't met too many people who had personality beforehand who lost it. I saw people who didn't have beforehand and still don't have. <laughs> and there's not much I can do about that. And... Uh, and um, I think I'm going to take one more question. And um, <laughs> you know, they, well, I have to just tell the story. But I'll take one more question. I have to just tell the story because um, it's, it's just Moshe Sher's tenth uh, yard site. So Moshe Sher at the at the Siyum Shas or at the Yehuda Convention, whatever it is, when the time was up on the speaker, he would turn off the microphone. He had Rashi Yeshiva and Torah, and he would turn off the microphone. Where did it start from? It started from Eric Kreisworth. Eric Kreisworth had a Sima Shas, and his time was almost up. And so, you know, Rashi handed him a note that says, you know, another 10 minutes. So he didn't look at the note, he put it in his pocket, and he went on talking for another half hour. He says, and now Moshe Sher has given me a very important message to read. Another 10 minutes. Okay. <laughs> After that, he just started turning off the mic. He says, forget it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to outdo Gadoli Torah. No, but I can turn off their mic. I can do that. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Orthodox Judaism is a cult. That's simple. All you have to do is define a cult. If a cult is because a bunch of people, you know, you know most people who will not say Christianity is a cult. Is that? And um, I, I, when I was in NCSY, you know, occasionally this would come up. You know, and we would, when we'd have cult busters come in, and one of the kids would ask, Is that this way a cult? And they would just laugh. They said, Obviously, you don't know what a cult is. You know what I mean? He says, Well, you know, they, um, you know, they sit on the floor in, in a circle, you know what I mean, and uh, light candles and sing songs. He says, So do the Boy Scouts. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it takes more than that to make you a cult. You know what I mean? Orthodox Judaism is a religion, right? And, Nobody would claim that every religion, I don't know, I shouldn't say nobody, but, you know, it's, uh, it's a set of beliefs. And I have to tell you, one of the reasons that it's not a cult, uh, it's an unbelievable story. Uh, there was this young lady who was a, a fundamentalist Christian who was 
um, converting to Judaism when I met her. And she said, why? She said she was in this fundamentalist Christian group, and uh, she kept asking questions. And the minister finally got upset at her and said, Sister, God wants you to cut off your head and come to him with your heart. Says At that time, at that point, I decided I would look into Judaism. And I found the complete opposite approach. When I would go to a rabbi and ask him a question, I got too much information. A rabbi would... Usher Wade, he was a Baptist minister, he converted to Judaism. He says, he had a lot of questions. And he went to one of the higher-ups in the church. And he says, I have these questions. He says, I used to have questions like that. He says, what'd you do? He says, I prayed till they went away. So come, let's pray. You know? Could you imagine you go to a rabbi and ask a question? He says, come. No, it's just the opposite. You go to a rabbi and ask him a question. He goes, oh, that's a wonderful question. So you could say like this and like this and like this. No, but you can also say this. But no, no, ask better. Because then you could say, well, now, what do we do with the rabbit? You know, and you're like, I don't really care that much. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. Now, Rebchayim, there's an unbelievable Rebchayim. You know? When you encourage people to ask questions, and that's what we do, right? We sit when a kid is little, and we bring him to the Seder table, and if the kid doesn't know how to ask, then you do things, it says in halacha, to make him ask. Get him to ask questions. We want people to ask. We want people to challenge. You know, I said to Usher Wade, I said, come on, there's got to be answers to all these various questions in Christianity, etc., etc. And he says, you're thinking like a Jew, he said to me. There is no Christian Talmud. You know what I mean? You have to have faith. That's a fundamental principle. And in Judaism, Talmud Torah, can I get kulam? Until the Reformation, it was punishable by death for a Christian to read the New Testament. Forget about the Old Testament. They didn't want everybody reading this and ripping it apart and asking kashas. You know what I mean? But Masha'en came, the person who goes in and is able to ask an unbelievable kasha, the Shiva, you know what I mean? Wow, he's the best guy in the yeshiva. You know what I mean? He slugged up the filthful shir. You know what I mean? He, he, he brought a kasha, he, you know. And, and there's this excitement. There's this excitement that when you start asking a question, you see the rabbi start leaning forward and says, yeah, yeah, let me hear, let me hear. Yes, yeah, 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 come on, come on, come on, come on. And those of us who want in yeshivas, we all know this. You know what I mean? This is, this is, yeah, oh, 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 ask better, ask better, come on. No, 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 you can see it, you can see it, come on, you don't see the cash, you don't see the cash, you don't. That's what we want. We want people to question. We want people to examine, we want people to ask, and uh, the more that we do, the more we understand for ourselves, and the more we're able to give over to everybody else. I want to end with this one story, and then we're going to show the DVD. Um, there was a story with the Chavetz Chaim at the Aguda convention and I think it was 1929 and he said the situation in Europe is so bad today that every person has to go out and do Kirit so he said and later on in the program he asked to speak again nope it was a packed program but the Chavetz Chaim wants to speak again so he asked you know Chaim Oizah please step to the side you know what I mean and you know and uh, you know the, the, the Arsameach you know please step aside you know, you know the Chavetz Chaim wants to begin he says, people started telling me that they heard people saying, when the Chavetz Chaim said, everybody, he didn't mean me. Didn't mean me. I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough. I don't have a personality. Yeah, this guy who's got a lot of personality, and this guy who's more outgoing, and this one who knows more, but not me. Yeah? He says, so I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a marshal. He says, there was a nobleman, and he owned many villages. And he was going around inspecting his villages. He came to one village, they gave him a drink of water, he spit it out, he said, ugh. This is sandy. They said, yeah, the water here is sandy. He said, it's not healthy. I'm making an edict from now on. You can't use the water in this town unless you boil it. Fine. A few weeks later, he's looking out of the window, and he sees the village burning down. 
Right. Hops into his carriage, he rushes off, and he sees the place up in flames. And nobody's doing anything. He says, why don't you put out the fire? He says, we want to, but we have to wait for the water to finish boiling so we can throw it on. He says, when I said boil the water, that's for drinking, that's for washing. But, but not for uh, when there's a fire. There's a fire, you, you take whatever water you have and you, and you throw it out. Right? You put it on. Okay. I had heard this story for many years. Purim, the year after I got married, I remember that year after I got married, I went to Israel to sit and learn for a year. I took off a year, and I didn't want to come back. I wanted to just sit and learn. It was so wonderful. But I, I was on leave of absence from NCSY, so I, uh, I didn't know. Do I have to go back? Not. Can I stay? So I went to Scheinberg, I went to Rebel Yoshev, and they both told me I have to go back. Fine, you have to do it. I have to go back. And that Purim... I remember I had drunk more than is uh, my usual thing, and I wasn't aware of the fact uh, there were tears streaming down my face. And the mashkiach of Chavetz Chaim, where I was learning at the time, Rabbi Kanarik, came over to me and says, Rabbi what's the matter? And I said, it's not fair because I can help other people, so I can't go and sit and learn for myself. And he says to me, Rabbi David, let me tell you a story. And he tells this story that I just told you, that I had told a half a dozen times, at least, to audiences. And I knew the story. And I sat patiently waiting till he was done. And when he was done, I looked at him and I said, Rebbe, but the wood is still not fit to drink. And he looked at me and he says, Rabbi David, halavai, we should just put out the fire. I, everybody points this out. The Kira B'chokim movement doesn't have a lot of time left. Because it's soon going to come to a point that the intermarriage rates are going to be so high that you're not going to know who's a Jew and everything's going to be so mebubal that you're not going to be able to do it anymore. There is a narrow window of opportunity. And the people in this room have an obligation because we'll be around. We'll be around, but how many more are going to be there with us? And when we get up to Shemayim and we go onto the express line because we're all fine from a Yidin, and as we go past the other line, and we're, of course, going to the executive line, you know, we pass all these people, there'll be a neighbor of ours who will pull us by our celestial sleeve and say, whoa, 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 a second, you knew about this? You knew about Torah and mitzvahs and Shabbos and all this stuff? He says, yeah. He says, but I went to school with you. Or, you know, oh, I lived in your neighborhood. Or I worked in your... Why didn't you ever say anything to me? Why didn't you ever tell me? I thought you'd make fun of me. Uh, I didn't think you were interested. He says, you know what? I can't tell you. Maybe I would have made fun of you. Maybe I wouldn't have been interested. Maybe I would have. Maybe I would be here now going on that line with you. Maybe I would have a firm family and I'd have firm kids and I would have everything that you have. I can't tell you. I don't know how I would have reacted. But wasn't I worth the risk? Isn't it worth taking a chance? So I just want to point out that there's a course <laughs> here in Queens, four-part course. It's only $25, and you get a DVD. And please wait now for the conclusion of the program, and I hope to see everybody participating. Thank you very much.